At the end our tale's begun. The curtain's down, the bows are done. Work is finished, scripts are writ. In centre stage, a light is lit. That's the ghost light, on its own. Shining bright, but all alone, except for those who hear its calls, and come to revel in its halls. For though the theatre's doors are closed, its power cannot be deposed, and so we ask that you all might come join us. Revel by Ghost Light. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ghost Light Revels. I am, as ever, your eternal host, Michael Cartledge. And with me today is my good friend, someone I've had the great pleasure of working with in several different capacities, and very ironically, the final uh, in the founders of Live Witness Theatre, the company that so many of my listeners are so very fond of. So please give a very warm welcome to our guest, Lily Quensler. Oh, hi, Michael. Thank you so much for asking me to come on. Thank you so much for being here, Lily. As ever, she's here metaphysically only because uh, we are still quarantining and she is down in London. <laughs> yeah, but we can, we can pretend. Indeed. So, Lily, uh, as you know, having listened to some of my previous podcasts, uh, I like to do this in a sort of sequential order of past, present, and future. So let's start with past. How did you sort of get started in the creative world? always been a show-off. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in my blood. Um, I come from a, a long line of sort of interrupters. Um, everyone in my family, you, you, you can't really get to the end of a sentence before someone else is jumping in and, and giving their two cents on the matter. Um, and so I guess, I guess that's why I've always liked being up on stage, was because you, you get the chance to sort of say your piece and even if there's a, a chaos and a, a whole thing going on on stage there is a logic underneath that means everyone gets to say their piece in the end um and so so that's why i've always loved getting up on stage um and then i sort of drifted away from drama for a little bit um i suppose because my my mom um has always been really into theater and so i went through that sort of young teen phase of being like I'm completely different than my parents, you know, nothing, um, I'm my own person, I'm, I'm not your person or whatever, so, um, so yeah, after that, I sort of, I went away from theatre for a little bit, but then when I was about 15, I, I came back to it, um, through a theatre company called Chicken Shed, who I am forever indebted to, for, for really my love of, my love of theatre, they, they, they taught me everything I know about how to love theatre. Um, they're a theatre company working in London with able-bodied and disabled performers, and they make physical theatre. Um, and I just really found a home there. I I used to go all the time, you know, up to upwards of you know I went I used to go about five times a week sometimes during their during the Christmas show period. Um, and it was just such a happy place and such a beautiful place. And, and the theatre they made was so striking and inclusive and just so much fun. So, yeah, from the ages of sort of 15 to, to 18, I really found my home in Chicken Shed. And it's what brought me back to, to theatre, but in, in my own capacity rather than anything that had been influenced by my family. 
Fantastic. What sort of um, theatre uh, did you do with Chicken Shed? So they make lots of physical theatre, which is something that I've st- I've carried on to uh, into my love of theatre today. So lots of sort of movement, dance, um, speaking without language, and it's it was really incredible the things that they taught me that you can do because they showed me that um, there's no there's nothing you can't overcome, you know, to, to, in, in, in making theatre, and that's kind of the beauty of it, is is you can create a scenario in which sort of anything can happen. And so I remember one piece the, the company did where there was um, a man in a wheelchair and then two um, other performers, two able-bodied performers, and there was a huge sort of scaffolding-like structure. And they performed a movement piece, the three performers, that involved them all climbing throughout the scaffolding um, with the two able-bodied performers sort of helping and lifting the performer who, who, whose legs didn't work, like helping them get up and then uh, the performer whose legs didn't work had incredibly strong upper body strength so he could like lift them up and push them and they managed to work through this structure so beautifully in a way that you may not always necessarily think possible, you know, for, for a person in a wheelchair and it was just beautiful and then... Um, you know, people who are perhaps deaf or dumb, you can you can say so much with movement without words, and I think that really showed me that in theatre, like, you can just do anything you want, and that's the beauty of it. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from or what you're doing, you can get up on stage and say something that's... Uh, could you repeat that last bit? The volume went... Oh no! Um, from from where? Um, from things that you can do getting up on stage. Oh well, it, I mean, it it just showed me that anyone can anyone can get up on stage and 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 everyone has something valuable to say. You know, there's nothing that will stop anyone from from getting up on stage and creating something. There's no boundaries to it. Hmm. Um, that's what's amazing about things. Uh, I'd like to take a quick point. Sorry to our listeners uh, for any technical issues that might arise during this. As I have often said, we are doing this as best we can under the circumstances. Uh, yeah, just let me know if there's anything, anything my end that I can do. No worries. Um, but uh, that's a fascinating experience. So what happened after? Um, so where did you go onward from that after you'd uh, worked with Chicken Shed? So then I did drama A-level in school. I hadn't done it in GCSE because I'd been in that period of being like, I'm an independent person. I don't want to you know, follow what my, my parents did or what my mom did. Um, came back to it in A-level, loved it. Um, and then from there I decided to go to uni applying applying with, um, with drama. Um, and then the... the this first summer of the, the summer of first year, so I hadn't gotten involved in anything with SAG, um, which is a potential regret of mine. I didn't do much theatre in first year, um, and SAG being the student theatre at Glasgow for, for anyone that doesn't know that, um, and that was a potential regret of mine. Although what it did allow me to do, I think, is sort of decide my own creative path but at the end of that first year I really felt like I'd not done enough 
theatre-wise, I really felt that lack, you know, I just spent the first year of uni basically boozing, making friends and, and not doing much else. Um, and so that summer I came back and I decided to write a play. And that was Baby Blues. Um, and Baby Blues for me, probably still to this day, one of the pieces of work that I'm, I'm most proud of. And it's certainly the piece of work that when I look back at everything I've done that sort of marks such a turning point for me. Because I think before that, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do within theatre. I didn't necessarily um, know that theatre even was what I wanted to do. And then I, I wrote Baby Blues, um, and that 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 just changed everything for me. I mean, I realised that writing, playwriting, was was something that I could do forever. I just loved it. Um, and that it was also, I mean, that was a great experience that summer. Uh, myself um, and Philippa Lawford, who you know from also, she performed in 3060, but she's a friend of mine from London, and she she directed it, so I'd written it, she directed it. And then Keir, Keir Aitken of Live Witness Theatre, of course, <laughs> he came down to London and he he stayed with me for 10 days and he acted in it. And we just, we just cobbled this play together in, in 10 days and then performed it above a pub in Camden at the Acetera Theatre in Camden. Um, and I just thought, God, this is great. You know, all we need is a few mates who are willing, a couple of other people, raise the money to rent out a pub space and just go for it and uh, never look back. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about that play. So Baby Blues, um, it, I performed, well, I haven't performed it, but it's been performed twice, so once in London, and then later on that year, I came up and I directed it in Glasgow after making some edits to the script um, between the two shows. Um, so that play, it follows the story of a young woman um, who is suffering with postnatal depression, although that's never really explicitly said, and I think that as the play goes on people work that out because um i should say that the, so the setup of the play is this woman and it the play starts with her giving birth and when the baby is born it's blue it's it's born and so she she's she sees that this baby is it's born dead um has the umbilical cord wrapped around its neck and it's born dead it's born blue and this is also how the audience sees it they see this little blue baby on stage but it's really confusing for her because everyone around her keeps going, oh, look at this beautiful baby you've got. You know, in the hospital, they're like, what a beautiful, what a beautiful baby girl. She's healthy. She's great. And, and you know, the character Katie is going, well, what, she, she's not great. She's fine. Someone help her. Someone help her. And, and no one responds. And, and so she's forced to take this baby home, um, this, this dead baby. And it, and it lives, um, sort of lives in her home with her. And you follow her journey throughout this quite disturbing existence for her, and, and the audience sees everything through her eyes. But as the play goes on, they perhaps begin to learn or understand that, in fact, the baby is alive, and that the reason that she's unable to relate to it is through her postnatal depression. Um, yeah, so, and, and that encapsulates like so many of the themes that I still focus on. When I write today, I write a lot about women's issues. I write a lot about pregnancy, <laughs> um, a lot about children. 
and, and the responsibility of motherhood really it's just always fascinated and compelled me even though I've never gone through it myself brilliant uh, as someone who saw it when it was performed in Glasgow it was a fantastic performance oh thanks Michael mm. So you did Baby Blues, and then uh, what happened after that? So that's, now we're in second year in Glasgow. Um, second year, second year was actually a really great year for making theatre. Um, it goes up and down. I feel like you get such, a, you get such creative bursts. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure many of your other guests have spoken about this, and I'm sure many of your listeners mm. will agree that you get you get these bursts of creativity where you really feel like you can do everything and you want to do everything and you just get so much work done and then all of a sudden you're in a massive rut and, and <laughs> you don't do much at all. Um, but no, second year was uh, second year of being in uni at Glasgow was actually a really big year for me in terms of just creative excitement. I think I, Baby Blues really triggered something in me in terms of um, feeling excited about creating and feeling like I could, I could do it and do it independently and, and I realised that all the means were there so so second year first year I did Baby Blues and then after that I oh actually maybe even before that I set up the Student Script Writing Society at Glasgow mm. um, which was a society designed to help people workshop their scripts because I felt like there wasn't really a space to do that um, specifically for scripts at the university and I, I, I've always felt that personally, like, bouncing your ideas off other people, that workshopping is one of the best things you can do as a writer. I mean, writing is such a sort of inherently lonely love. You just sort of sit by yourself, typing away on your computer, um, and you can get too much in your own head. And I mean, especially for something like theatre that's meant to live, meant to live, you know, in the air or in, 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 in spoken word rather than just on the page. I think that sharing it's so important. So I set up the Student Script Writing Society, learned so much from the amazing people that came to that. Um, and then later on that year, I also put on Goblin Market, uh, which was a physical theatre piece, which I directed um, with some amazing, amazing performers. Um, we devised it together. Um, and yeah, that, that, that was really quite the theatre from Chicken Shed and all the movement, um, again, like Baby Blue Note, encompassing issues surrounding women, women's bodies, um, based off the Christina, Christina Rossetti poem, Goblin Market. Um, and that was, a, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I still look back on that performance with so much fondness. Um, so, yeah, that, that's sort of what happened after Baby Blues. And, and, then, and then I didn't make, I didn't make any theatre for a year after that. Correct me if I'm wrong, the year after that was your year abroad, uh, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. So I went to America. Mm -hmm. I had an amazing time. Um, and I was really creatively engaged in in a lot of ways. I, I, I discovered writing fiction in that year, which was a huge, huge thing for me. Um, and I wrote, in my first term there, I wrote two short plays. Um, and I really felt really great about both of them. I thought, you know, one of them, one of the short plays, I think, is one of the best things I've ever done. I was so proud of it. And then 
I went on to write another play. I wanted to write a full-length play. Um, this was for a, a course that I was doing. And um, I just I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Everything that I wanted to write just, just came out wrong. It just sounded disingenuous. It sounded overthought. It, it didn't work, um, which was a really... I'm sure, you know, everyone, everyone who is in creative, uh, like, everyone who is creative experiences this, um, I'm sure, but it's so disconcerting when it happens, because you, it just, it just pulled me up completely short, you know, I really felt like I was on this roll, I felt like I was unstoppable, I was like, wow, look at me, I'm all the way across the world, and I'm loving everything, and I've got all this creative fountain that will never end, and then one day I just woke up, and I couldn't write a word and that lasted a really long time um really really long time I was able to write fiction but something about writing words for plays just like I couldn't do it and it was so it was a real struggle and it's something I'm still sort of trying to get over um and and that's you know it's hard. It's hard to kickstart yourself, especially because once you start to second guess the things that you're writing, suddenly, suddenly that sort of you become your own worst enemy because you say, "Oh no, that won't work. That won't work." You don't really give anything the chance to try. Um, whereas you know, sometimes the crap is the best things just because you you put them on their, your feet and you're like, "God, that was, you know, totally didn't work." But there was one line in there that was brilliant and let's write a whole new play about that and you just want to keep going but um but no I really I kind of had this severe writer's block and I so I, ch I started channeling all my work into fiction um but then I came back to Glasgow this year and and I have I really have 3060 actually to to thank for um a lot of the sort of creative revamp that I I feel like um, that, it, that it helped give me. Um, backtracking, if I may, slightly, you mentioned two short plays that you wrote while you were in America, one of which you think might be uh, some of your best work. Tell us about them. Mm. So that, I, I, I do actually really like this piece of work. It's called, it's a piece called The Worst Thing You Can Do. And... Um, uh, anyone who saw anyone who saw over lockdown, um, my the series of monologues I wrote called Nine Ways to Deal with Death, um, will well, might recognise the character uh, the Moxie monologue. Uh, so this this actually started so it all started off as this monologue. Before I wrote the play, I wrote, I wrote this one monologue, which I then also later put in a different series called Nine Ways to Deal with Death. But this monologue is about a man who is talking about his cat, his dead cat, and um, a very lonely man. And he says, you know, I, I, had, I had no one. I had no one in the world except, except Moxie. And then he goes on to say, so I, I didn't know what to do, did I? I mean, I, I just didn't, I didn't know what to do. And then, you know, he tells you that the cat is dead. Um, and then he goes on to say, well, I have one of those ideas. One of those ideas that's so terrible and awful that once you've thought it, you sort of have to do it. And it, he eats his cat um, because he just doesn't know what else to do. Um, 
And so I wrote that monologue, and from that, I really liked the character I wanted to take him further. So I wrote this short play um, called uh, The Worst Thing You Could Do. And it's about a little girl, um, a little girl who sort of lives alone, or she, she's homeless, and she comes in, she knocks on this guy's door, this guy Ed, she's trying to sell him some cardboard, just trying to get some money in. And, and right from the get-go, you realise, they, they have this really... Um, I think the thing I like about the play is their dynamic, really, which is so... It's kind of antagonistic at the same time as being quite tender underneath it all. Um, so, like, the first thing that he does, you know, she, she knocks on the door, he opens up and says, what the fuck do you want? And she goes, you can't talk to me like that, I'm only 11. He says, I didn't ask how old you are, asking what the fuck, what the fuck he wanted. <laughs> And then from then on, it sort of it goes like that. So it's a it's a really sweet play, and I've actually never put it on, but that would be probably one of my next ambitions would be to get to put that play on because it's just a little two hander, um, probably quite easy to do. But I think I'd like that. Sounds fascinating. I look forward to that. Uh, so you mentioned that you came back after a year abroad, and that you got involved uh, with well, you you got involved with Live Witness. You helped set up Live Witness. Uh, so tell us a bit about that. So, um, Live Witness is Kieran Max's theatre company, um, and I'm l- lucky enough to have been friends with Kit all throughout uni, um, met in a first year theatre lecture, never looked back, lived with him now for all of uni since, uh, and I, I've got huge respect for what Kieran Max have done in just going and, and setting up Live Witness, I mean, they really just did it off their own bats, um. And so my capacity with Live Witness was I, I directed um, 3060 alongside Keir and, and Kat, who I, you've had both of them on to chat. Um, and that was just a pleasure, just such a pleasure. Um, and in terms of what I was talking about before with the, with the writer's block and stuff, I mean, I'm sure other people have, I know, I know other people have come on here and spoken about 3060, and I know that obviously, Michael, you were part of, 3060, that's how we really became so close. Um, and it's just an amazing process because you've got no time to second guess yourself. Start to finish, you, you know, from casting to performing, you've got a week. And they're only two minutes anyway, so you've got no time to go, oh God, is this good enough? Is, is, it, is it bad? You just go and you've got to do it and you pitch your ideas. And if they're not good enough, then you've got a couple of rehearsals to make them good enough, and and then you know too bad. And and it, and the stakes are the stakes are in many ways. I don't want to say low, but they, but because there's thirty plays, if one of them's not good as the rest, it doesn't it doesn't matter quite so much, you know. And that's really liberating. And actually, it means that very rarely are the plays of a poor standard. Because so often the only thing that limits something standard is is its creator's own self-doubt. And when you eliminate that self-doubt, you can just really push things so so far. And and the collaborative nature of 36 is just, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Like, you always keep bouncing ideas off each other. Um, the, the, the space is electric. I mean, the space is completely electric. I would love to go forward and put on more productions of 3060 while I'm down in London. I mean, I just think such a great form. Everyone should, everyone should have a chance to be in 3060 at least once. It's just so fun. Hmm. That's great. 
you are right, 3060 was just the experience of a lifetime. Oh, wasn't it just, like, so, so much fun. And you get to become such good friends with the people you're working with as well. Mm, because you all rely on each other so much, you know, you all know that you, you you all work together on little plays and you all know that if someone doesn't do something, you know, someone if you forget your prop on the wrong side of stage, one of your fellow, you know, one of your fellow actors will run across and give it to you. And, and God, it's just, it is just brilliant. And it's so quick thinking as well. My God, like if anyone ever wants is any of their creative muscles then I would recommend a good dose of 3060 mm. uh, we'll have an opportunity to gush more about that later but moving on from that uh, after <laughs> the most recent 3060 ended um, after the most recent 3060 ended we almost immediately entered a period of enforced lockdown due to the coronavirus crisis yeah. so what have you sort of been up to over that it's been up and down it's been I've, I've had moments of creativity and moments of complete, <laughs> complete opposite of just complete desert. Um, so I was really lucky to be spend most of my quarantine time living in Glasgow with my two incredibly wonderful mates, Keir and Angus, um, and Angus's lovely girlfriend Beth, who were all in their own rights really. Um, interested in interesting people and I think that was really lucky that was really lucky to be living with them and especially they're all really creative in their own rights um Angus is a, a filmmaker he studies film Keir's a theatre maker uh Beth was editor-in-chief of the Glasgow Guardian this year so she's got a kind of different creative pulse but in terms of journalistic and news writing um and so they kept me really afloat in terms of just keeping keeping things ticking over and I don't even mean in terms of in of in any big ways of big projects I mean we did do some big projects together but also just in terms of things like always having great music on in the flat and cooking adventurous things and going for long walks and to, you know reading we read a lot of the same books over that time and chatted about them and and we made in the end me Karen Angus uh, made Pillow Talk together which is another live witness um show that's going on at the moment and that was an amazing creative endeavor to do as flats and then I also um I also did a really fun thing so the monologue I mentioned that was the foundation of the worst thing you could do the one about the guy eating his cat I also transferred that to another series of monologues called nine ways to deal with death um which I put on with opening shop um and you can find find it on youtube find all of the opening shop um performances on YouTube, should you so wish, <laughs> opening shop, nine ways to deal with death. Um, but that, so that was a series of nine monologues performed by three wonderful actors and directed by the amazing Nico, single years. <laughs> and that was great fun to write because it was just like, it felt like mental gymnastics. Um, Cause you have these nine characters all with completely different experiences you know the, the, the common theme is they all have something to do with death but that they really range I mean some of them are quite serious and to do with the genuine emotion of loss and grief and then some of them are kind of more absurd and you know there's one there's one about a boy um who his best friend got into the Guinness Book of World Records because he could fit um 12 snails on his face 
Um, and and this boy says, uh, and he says, you know, he probably only got in because no one else had ever even tried to fit in more before. But anyway, <laughs> and then eventually, unfortunately, his friend, it goes to his head. This little boy in the playground that he's been gotten into the Guinness Book of World Records, and he first about hundred snails on his suffocates um and uh, could you repeat that last bit friend. please so that so they do mean sorry uh, uh that last bit uh, you cut out slightly so uh, you said the boy gets a big head and oh he tries to put 100 snails on his face and he suffocates he chokes on a snail e. um and so that is the end of poor little albert <laughs> so so they were so much fun to write because they really do range in this huge, huge range of themes and tones. Um, and I love monologues. I really love monologues. I mean, like I said before, early on in the podcast, I, I come from a family of interrupters. So monologues are great because you just get the chance to say everything in one go without anyone else coming in and butting in. And, and, and you can, you really have space in a monologue to meander, but but sometimes it's the meandering thoughts that are the most interesting. Um, so those are the two big projects I guess I've done over lockdown. Um, but then also, I mean, what I really want to do is get down and, and write something new because in, in, in all truth, um, I produced Nine Ways to Deal with Death over lockdown, but I wrote it a, a while ago. I wrote it while I was in America. Um, during um, a kind of that, a kind of flurry of writing right at the start, so it's not a new thing that I've written. Um, and in all honesty, it's hard. I found it really hard to to sit down and write during lockdown. It feels difficult when you don't know where things are going. It feels hard to write something without knowing that you're going to be able to put it on, or without knowing that people are going to you know, going to get the chance. And I mean, I don't, I don't know about you or your, your other guests, but I do, it is hard. It's hard over lockdown to, to get that creative energy going. Um, and I know that that's something a lot of my friends have experienced and it'll be interesting coming out now to see how, see how that feels. I mean, is that, is it, Make an excellent point. And uh, and so we do sort of bring ourselves to the present as lockdown slowly begins to ease, for better or for worse. Yeah. And so what are you what are you sort of up to around the present? So right now, Michael, I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm working it all out. I'm just working it all out. I really have no idea. I I want to write something. Um, I love I love the idea of putting 3060 on in London. I think that'd be so much fun. Um, and I'm, I want to try and continue to write fiction. I would love to get some kind of job in the arts, but um, wouldn't we all? Mm. <laughs> um, but no, I'd love to get some kind of job. I mean, I'm just going to look for things. Like, I'd love to have the chance to shadow a playwright or, or sit in on a, the rehearsal process for a, for a real piece of theatre. But, I mean, you also can't always get those things. So I want to remember that I can I can always make theatre by myself and I can always 
um, create by my by myself as well, or obviously not by by myself actually, because it's the exact opposite. But you don't need an infrastructure, I guess, is what I mean. Mm. You just need a couple of people who are willing. Um, but I'm I'm really excited. I mean, like I said, in terms of um, living with Angus and Keir, how that was so great for creativity. I'm moving in with um, two two creative friends come September. Um, one of my oldest and dearest friends, Miles, um, who he's an incredibly creative person, um, studying film, um, and I just I think that'll be really nice. And I think that's sort of all we can do in these times is surround ourselves with people who we feel are like who we feel are inspiring and, and creative and, and good to us, you know, because then that's that's when things are made is in those environments. Um, and so I feel really grateful to feel really grateful to have them have them there. Um, yeah. Looking forward though, I do want I do want a next project to work on. <laughs> I haven't got anything that's too specific in the in the pipelines right now. Well, speaking of looking forward, let us uh, quickly direct ourselves towards the future segment. Let's talk about sort of more immediacy. What would you like the future, say, for the rest of the year, the beginning of the next year, to hold for you? Because I think that's quite a 
quite a nice way for people who want to write to be able to write in a more commercially viable way. Um, I mean, when I say commercially viable, I mean literally just getting enough money to live. Um, because, because I do believe that even though I don't exactly know what I want to do right now, I could stay at home. I mean, I'm lucky in that I have a house. My family live in London. Um, it's where I am right now. It's where I'm calling from. And I'm so lucky that I have that base in London. But I also think, for myself anyway, that I will only really know what I... I'll only push myself out when I put myself in those situations. And so if I live at home, I can see myself getting very comfortable, not really doing anything creative, not putting on any plays, not doing any writing, you know, not getting any jobs, not connecting and just sort of sitting on my laurels. So it's really important to me that I get out and I'm moving into this flat in September. And I hope that that really gives me the stir and the, and the stimulation that I need, you know, getting out there and being like, well, you've got to pay the rent. How are you going to do it? Um, uh, and I mean, obviously, I've, I've already got a, I've already got a job that I can do to, you know, pay pay some of the rent, but it's not, it's not what I want to be doing necessarily. So just working working towards that, I guess. Fair and solid. And let's talk slightly more aspirationally, if we may. This is a question I like to ask uh, my uh, creatively inclined guests. Suppose you were given license to put on any production you wanted, like money, location, no object. What would you want to do? Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's such a great question. Um, well, I just obviously want to go really big now mm. that you said I can have money, no object. Um, I'd love to do a piece of site-specific theatre. I've always thought that's so cool. Um, um, now I'm sort of thinking I want to do it something like incredibly grand, like Niagara Falls, but that's just because you said that I'm money is no object, so, so I don't actually think that's necessarily a creative wish. Um, but no, I would love to do something like that, or I would, I would love to, um, experiment, spending a lot of time devising as well, I really do love devising, and I love physical theatre, um, and that takes real time. You know, the luxury of time is something we often don't have. Um, but really taking the time to explore a theme with a group of people who are passionate about it, you know, um, uh, an issue perhaps around womanhood. I am so interested in the female body as, as, as a site in itself, um, as it is so often treated by others and viewed... Um, as a stage for people to play out their own expectations of female identity. Um, and it, it, that's, and I would love to just explore that with a group of femme, um, woman identifying performers. Um, but like I say, I mean, that just takes, that takes a lot of time. So I would love to just have an amazing space, an amazing cast of female identifying performers and just to really delve into that and work with that and work with bodies and physical theatre and, and see what we could make with it. Because I love, I love physical theatre and I'd love to come back to it. And it's so, it can be so beautiful and so moving. And it's the joy of theatre that, you know, you don't have to 
believe with your eyes what you're seeing on stage you just have to believe it with your heart and so that's that's why you know movement can be so fantastic because you might not necessarily believe that you're seeing um a birth on stage say because you know that you're not seeing a birth on stage you know you're in the theater whereas you know often with films it's more the aim of a film or the kind of straight realism that we've become so attuned to in most of our visual media telly film etc where you basically are, they basically are trying to convince you that a birth is actually happening. Theatre can't really do that. I mean, everyone knows no one's giving birth on stage. So that's sort of freeing too, because then you just get the chance to go, what do we actually want to show them then? And I'd love to just spend some time working on questions like that. Um, I think it'd be really lovely. It's a brilliant answer. It sort of puts me in mind of your uh, live witness cohort's answers. Yeah. Mm. I always joke about that because Max and Keir g- g- both gave very relatively grounded and realistic answers to the question. And Kat before them had talked about a production she wanted to do where the stage splits in two. <laughs> that's big. That's big. Yeah. But that's, a, that's an answer. And so as we sort of approach the end, uh, of our time together. As you know, I like to muse a while on time shared. And we, oh, we will I'm get... We will get to 3060, but before that, I would like to talk a bit about... I, of course, auditioned for Goblin Market, your uh, devised physical theatre piece. And I, I'll be honest, it was definitely... I, I got a call back for it. As I recall, and it was the most surprised I've ever been to get a call back in my life. Really? Really? Well, here's the thing: I am not by my, I I'm not by my nature a physical theatre actor. Um, I can do it, but it is not a form I relish. Largely because I'm very inflexible. Um. So I was very pleased when I did get a call back, and I was very pleased that you, but that you and Hannah Shinton, who I recall was Aideen with you, uh, felt that I was worth one. Oh well, I mean, I I just remember with you, Michael, the real uh, ability to give it a go. I mean, I think the issue with a lot of people in physical theatre is they are just so afraid of it, and even I mean, hearing you say that, I mean, you're an incredibly competent performer an incredibly competent performer and also a, a, a born gesticulator. Anyone who's had a conversation with Michael will know that his hands are, you know, flying about and there's gestures and he's always, always delivering, um, you know, his, his monologue with his, with his hands and so many, and I think that makes you a physical theatre performer. Um, and so many people don't, see that i mean even the flexibility thing like you don't have to be flexible you can be strong or crooked or anything you know and physical theater is just about bringing your body to the space i mean that's what i learned from chicken chat is there is no body that cannot do physical theater and uh, i think i i remember you in in the in the audition really giving it um a lot and i actually really distinctly remember you performing really well I think you were one of my top choices to be in it had I think you were like 
number one on my shortlist, which I'm really surprised that you didn't see yourself like that. But I do think that there's just a fear that, that so many people feel around movement um, that, that yeah, that, that, that they just think they can't do it. And I really do want to impress upon everyone that, that, that anyone can do it. You just need a body. But that was, I, I remember that audition, the, the callback really well. That was such a fun, mm. fun session. Mm. It was a fun session. And whilst I do, see, I, I felt really out of place at the callback because everyone else was in like quite high quality, like, because you'd said, because we were doing the physical theatre stuff, you'd said dress comfortably. Everyone else was in quite like high quality workout gear and stuff, legs and everything. I was in an old pair of jogging bottoms and a t-shirt. Mm. I think all that kind of athleisure stuff and, and you know leggings that cost a hundred quid a pop. I mean, who yeah. needs that? You just need a body that can move. Like mm. anything you've got. I mean, jeans you can't. Jeans you can't. There are no. obviously certain restrictions. Yeah. But you don't need. You don't need money, or you don't need to look good in a tiny little sports bra or anything like that. And I think that as soon as people hear the word physical, they think, oh God, that's not me. Mm. Um, you know, oh God, I'm not, I'm not sporty or I'm not, um, you know, the part my body's not good looking enough. It's not aesthetic enough. You know, I think people think they have to be a ballerina. Um, but it's the complete opposite. I mean, it's, 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 it's really the diversity that you want and need. I mean, um, look at Goblin Market and the, and the people I, I did end up casting. I mean, you have a huge range of, 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 body types and shapes and, and, and abilities there. You have Iona, who is a, a trained dancer. I mean, she really does know and and have a very physically, a body that's physically used to doing things like that. Um, and then others who'd never done that before. I mean, look, Tom Lindsay is probably double the height of, of Ellie James, um, <laughs> both mm. of whom I cast because they were both, you know, brilliant in their own ways and brilliant in inhabiting their own bodies. And and despite all the differences, I mean, that's what made it such a such a great cast. It it was a fantastic performance and one that did indeed write itself into Stag's history in slight infamy, uh, because as we all remember, Iona got slightly injured. Yes. Oh, that was so frustrating because, uh, I mean, the thing is, you can never. Yeah. I mean, I, I take responsibility for that um, in the end. I mean, we it was just frustrating. We rehearsed that so many times safely. Mm. And we rehearsed that so many times with the berry juice as well. Um, mm. So in this performance, uh, we used a lot of berry juice. Uh, we used real berry juice. And um, we understood the risk that that could make the stage slippery, but we practiced really carefully um, making sure that didn't happen. And then I just think on the night, um, I just think on the night everyone um, got sort of, I don't want to say overexcited. Exuberance. We practiced very specific quantities of, of fairy juice and stuff like that. And I think mm. just in, on the night of the show, there's so many things to concentrate on that that got slightly overlooked. Um, and the stage was just slipperier than it had been in the past. But that's really something I learned. I mean, the physical safety of your performance has to be a top priority and I failed in that sense in, in that performance so that was a real learning curve for me. 
I would like to clarify, I wasn't admonishing you for it. It's just something a lot of us remember about that. Iona made a joke out of it after the fact. Indeed, um, the, the thing she always joked about is this. The day after, she had to read in a role in a show she was a production manager of. Um, because, oh, yeah, of course. Because, snow. yeah, this was the year of the catastrophic snowstorm, which meant a lot of people couldn't get it. But the big joke was that she yeah. was... She was reading through that role, and there's a bit where other characters look at that character, and the character assures them, no, don't worry, I'm fine. A lot of people thought that that scene was a lot better, considering that Iona was had her arm in a sling as a result. <laughs> yeah, because that wasn't part of the original... Uh, thing. But no, but yeah, so Goblin Mike was fun, and now we do get to uh, 3060. Uh, we, of course, were. I, I've talked about this a lot with Kat and Max and Kier, but there is a specific thing that I didn't discuss in great detail with them that I can discuss with you, and which was, of course, a show we sort of designed collaboratively. Um, yes. Yes, uh, which was, of course, Happy Meal. Yeah. Um, and Happy Meal. Yeah. It was. It was definitely one of the heavier pieces of uh, yeah. 3060 because uh, it dealt with very serious subject matter, the idea of eating disorders. But I'll be honest, it was a brilliant thing for me to be involved in because it was the first time I actively and openly admitted to and owned my eating disorder. the maddest respect for you that you did that because because my eating disorder is something that I obviously still you know think about and it's sort of part of me but I'm lucky enough that I've recovered and have been for about three or four years now and it's only now after all this time that I've been able to speak about it and so I just have the maddest 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 respect for you that you were able to stand up on stage and and talk about a much more contemporary experience for you. I just thought, God, mm -hmm. so brave and it completely inspired me and I'm so, so happy to to do that with you. That was such mm -hmm. a such a great piece I thought. The thing I can't help but think about is that I had never actually used the word anorexia until we did that show. I mean never. No well I knew I knew what it was and so forth. I just never here's the thing. Early on, I never used the word because I thought that can't possibly be what I'm going through. Anorexia is for like super skinny women who never eat. Um, yeah. And then I actually did some research and realized, no, anorexia nervosa is simply an eating disorder largely centered around the mind in which you deliberately perceive yourself to be of uh, to be in a manner that you do not wish and thusly you obsessively well, you obsess over what you eat. And I realised that... Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, I would not look like an anorexia sufferer to any given person, but at the time, I was walking a sort of razor's edge between being relatively normal for my size and being underweight. Um, yeah. And so... I, mean, I think that thing with eating disorders is they're just neatly shrouded in misconception. Hmm. Mm. So it was. It was. Like of, of course, you suffer from one. Yeah. It. It was a great. It was great to be able to do that and to actually talk about it. 
uh, and so forth. And it ever since then, I have been getting a lot better, which I think is a really good thing. Really? Really. Oh, that fills me with just joy. That, oh, that makes me so I was I'm making... So... I was making deliberate efforts after it spurred on by it, and I, ironically, one thing that did kind of help was quarantine, because I because I went back home and then didn't have an excuse for not eating because I constantly had my parents looking over my shoulder. So it did, and I've been keeping that up yeah. since I got back. So I think I am on the road to recovery, oh, and it is, and it is largely thanks to doing Happy Meal. similar experience a lot of people particularly who knew me were all saying oh my god we had no idea you went through that it's amazing that you can talk about it like that Character study. Well. Yeah, and yeah. I just remember that being such a brilliant piece. I feel like because you're the one doing the podcast, you might not get the chance to talk. But I remember um, I was chatting to uh, a group of friends who'd come to see it afterwards, and they said that that was that by far and away their favourite piece of the whole thing. That was such a brilliant piece, and um, I was just remembering it so fondly because I was thinking, oh, I'm going on the podcast later, and I was imagining you sort of going through all of the iterations of who is Michael Cartledge, the steampunk, the debater, the Shakespeare, 
Yeah. Fanatic. <laughs> I, I, I will say a lot of people, particularly with both Max and Kia, and particularly with Kat, they all were saying the same thing. A lot of people were telling them they loved that piece, and that that really makes me happy. Oh, I've got, I'm so glad that it's come up multiple times. Such mm, a good piece. It is. It is a great piece. thing. But I'm thinking, what yeah. other pieces were? The... There is obviously a hint of sadness to all this discussion because. Uh, what's 5th of August mm. it's probably about now that sorry uh, no I was just uh, but you were saying 5th of August is probably about now that uh... hang on I, I can't hear you you've um, cut out for a second mm -hmm. technical difficulties folks sorry Yes, I can hear you. Right. So what I was saying is um, this conversation comes not without a hint of sadness mm. because today being the 5th of August is probably around the time we would have been setting off to start our rehearsals for the Fringe run mm. that would have been. Yeah. So. Mm, it was a, it is a sort of a sad point because I is the worst thing is after being in 3060 I went from I am going to not get involved in any fringe shows this year because I'm going to try to work to how much holiday time am I allowed because I yeah, exactly. I so wanted to get involved but I've been thinking of in the 3060 we were both in other pieces besides Happy Meal that we were both involved in because we both did there were the full cast ones we did uh, my one Take Me Back uh, where we talked about places with particular significance to us. We did a week's worth of rubbish, uh, which is very, which is one of those ones that is what it says on the tin. It's us all yeah. <laughs> bringing a week's worth of our rubbish. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I remember, was it called duct tape? The bit where you yeah. and the others tape Jenny Barron to the wall? That was a funny I remember, one. I remember when we were both. I remember when we were both in there. We were both in Getting Better. Yes. Yeah, which was a nice physical theatre piece done by Jenny. Hmm. Yeah, it was really sweet. We sort of did like joint puppetry on that one. Hmm. Yes, it was. Um. Uh, it was the idea that myself, uh, Lily, and uh, some others were essentially piloting one of the actors who is having trouble doing things for themselves, but he's, as the title suggests, getting better. Yeah, mm. it's a really tender piece, actually, a really sweet one. Mm. And again, I mean, an example of physical theatre, that, that that piece had no words in it, but an example of physical theatre saying a lot. Mm. Really, what were your three pieces from 3060? Happy Meal was one of yours. Happy Meal was one of mine. Then Lillian Keir gets stoned and turn up to the Glasgow University gym. <laughs> yes! Um, which was a balletic reimagining of me and Keir um, at, at the pool, at the uni swimming pool, which was a fun pastime of ours. Uh, and then my third one was a week's worth of rubbish, which in hindsight was potentially a weaker, probably one of the weaker ones. Um, oh, sorry. Bless you. Amazing. Thank you. Um, 
yeah, but that was a learning curve, that one. I mean, that's the fun thing about Delhi 60 is you, you can try lots of things and really work out what works and what doesn't. And I think the issue of the week's worth of rubbish is it was too much faff. It was too much faff. Everyone had to bring in all of their rubbish, way too many props for way too many props for the size of production and for the speed of production. And it also just translated, I think, as a little bit uh, on the surface, a little bit didactic. In hindsight, I wish I'd done the piece about the socks, um, the, the sock love story about a pair of socks that get separated in the wash. Um, but you learn. I mean, you learn. That's why, mm. that's why we do things and that's why we keep doing them. Mm, you do learn and we carry on. And it was a fantastic experience, as I've said. Yeah, what it truly, truly was. Mm-hmm. And here's hoping that uh, we all, in some form or another, get to do it again, eventually. Oh, please. I, I, I pray that that happens. And I'm sure it will, you know. We can make that happen just, mm. just in, a, in a, you know, as time passes. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of any other notable moments we share. Now, most of the other things we were in were sort of larger group pieces. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were several large group pieces. I mean, I'm sure there were, but there's there's thirty plays to remember. Mm. It does. You do forget. <laughs> I remember really distinctly an exercise piece that you did with Jenny. Um, the reading the letters one. Oh yes. Yeah, in one of the writers' workshops, writing a letter to a family member. Hmm. I. Yeah. I remember that one for slightly weird reasons, because at the end, um, the theory was that we had each written, like, fake letters to family members under under sort of circumstances that we had come up with, and then we sort of both... Then we got into pairs and made sort of physical uh, theatre pieces. Bless you. Uh, surrounding them. And me and Jenny did one together, which actually turned out quite well. And here's the funny thing, is that we were told to come up with a musical track uh, that suited the... Here's the thing. I ended up... We ended up using a musical track I had suggested, which worked very well uh, for our piece. The weirdest thing was that it was the second track I suggested. The first one... Because they said, come up with a track that reminds you of this family member. And the first track I suggested was by pirate metal band Alestorm, called Fucked With An Anchor. Because... I had written the letter to my beloved sister, who is currently in Australia, and this particular song starts with the lines, Fuck you, you're a fucking wanker. <laughs> in fairness, what else rhymes with anchor? Uh, so that the, the tempo was completely wrong for what we were trying to do. It was just the first song that came into my head. And I'm free with saying this because neither my sister nor my parents listens to this. Uh, um, so I think I've got away with it. Um, so but that, we then ended up using Lying Awake by Steam Powered Giraffe, uh, which has a much slower tempo and really yeah, suited really it. Mm, I, I, I was very happy with how that turned out. I, I just love 3060 because I met some amazing new people like Philippa and uh, Yael and Zog and other yeah. people who I already knew I, I just got a lot closer to. Mm. we really became friends over the process which was so nice and and even in you know the short period of, of a week i felt so close to everyone in that cast mm. so did i it was a, it was an amazing performance and i was i was so 
happy when I was asked to be a part of it because I did not think I was going to be selected. I do not possibly understand how after that audition you could ever think that you wouldn't be selected. Like, well, it's because... I thought it was hands down probably the best audition we had. It was phenomenal. I mean, Michael, Michael did his piece, the, the Who Am I piece with, with all his personalities and it was, it was brilliant. It was well, brilliant. As I said to you all during the production, I hadn't actually performed on stage for nearly a year by that point. Um, and I had begun to really doubt myself uh, as a performer because I felt like I just wasn't good enough. Uh, and, and as I said during the thing, it was being involved in that and having people around me who were telling me that they thought I was doing really well was actually what inspired me and essentially kicked me up the arse to get my drama school applications in. Uh, which yeah. I, which I did by the end of by the end of the run, I'd gotten them all in. Uh, I got rejected from all of them, but that's that's the way it goes. That is the way it goes. I feel like it's so often in these things that it's like actually just the trying and the like the mm. doing it that gives you the boost of confidence. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know if you've ever heard the How to Fail podcast with Elizabeth Day. Doesn't ring a bell. I've been listening to it recently, and it's just basically she gets a lot of people onto onto the podcast. She's a journalist, and she talks to people who are considered to be conventional successes. Um, but she talks to them about how their perceived failures actually shaped who they are. Mm. And it's really interesting, and it's really nice, and it's really like good to listen to at times like this when everything feels a bit overwhelming, and especially you know having just graduated and going into this crazy world and. Mm. And rem reminding ourselves that sometimes the things that you think have gone wrong are actually the things that go right. Mm. Um, like for me, I applied to Cambridge for university and I didn't get in. And I remember at the time being like, oh, that's really awful. I was really upset. And now I think, thank God I didn't go there. Like, I would not be nearly the person I am now because Glasgow made me because of the people I met, the friends I met. I got to go on a year abroad. I, you know, I had the freedom to create under a lesser academic pressure. I mean, it just would have been insane. I, would have, I wouldn't have met the people that made me as creative and happy as I am. And mm. I mean, what's more important than, than that, than, be, than being happy? Mm. I just, and so, yeah, I feel like often these things, in answer to you not getting the acting thing, I feel like so often these things are actually the blessing that you don't realise they are. Mm. I... I certainly, when I received the notices that I had been rejected, I did not feel particularly distraught about it because I'd always known it was possible. In fact, I'd always known that in the grand scheme of things, it was likely. And so I just thought to myself, oh no, now I'm going to have to go back to my lovely flat and work in the job I love for at least another year. Whatever, <laughs> whatever shall I do? I, I actually, I felt worse for friends of mine who have just come out of uni, who got rejected from drama schools and like, and so who are now having to face the big bad world yeah. and so forth. Because it is, because coming out of university and going into the world, it is a bit, it is, it is a big step. It is a bit of a culture shock. And I found this. And I, and I'm now in a good place, but it didn't come without sort of hardships and trials and tribulations. creative fear and that that, that that real apprehension that I hope I'm able to get over and push through and start to make things again. Yeah. Well, I think we're coming uh, to the end of our time together. You and I could just sort of 
wax about the meaning of existence all day, but uh, yeah. I, but I suspect our listeners do have other things to do. Um, so, as you know, I like my guests to end on a theatrical thought. Yes, indeed. Do you have a theatrical thought for us? I do. <laughs> um, I think this is a good theatrical thought for me to choose because it's it's a Sarah Kane thought, um, and Sarah Kane is one of the big reasons, one of the big people I fell in love with in theatre. I mean, she talks about so many of the things that I still think about all the time in terms of female identity, the body on stage, all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, there's a huge amount of space in hers for the absurd and the physical and all this kind of stuff. And anyway, Sarah Kane basically has this idea that she says, um, if you can't put something on stage because it's too shocking or too violent or too whatever, then... She says you're basically pretending it doesn't exist, and uh, that's a very dangerous thing to do. And I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that that so many of the things that happen in life are deeply horrific, but but if you can't put them on stage, then you deny their existence. And I, she also says, I'd damn rather have something play out on stage than play out in real life. Mm. So, and I think that's that's how we can how we can use theatre and how we can see it. So yeah. That is a brilliant, brilliant thought, especially in these times we live in. And thank you very much for sharing it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Michael. This has been just a lovely chat. It, it's oh, been great. Nice. It's been great to have you here. And so it is with great sadness that we come to the end of another exciting episode of Ghostlight Rebels. I would like to take this opportunity to remind our listeners, as ever, we are still in a global pandemic. And though I have started conducting some interviews face to face, it does not mean that we can disregard any and all safety measures and just go about as if nothing is wrong. Please stay safe. Look after one another. So it's goodbye from me. It's a goodbye from Lily. Bye. And we shall see you all next time. As ever, stay safe, take care. Goodbye. Our revels now are ended. We have reached the final page. And only the ghost light is left to occupy the stage. And though it may seem simple, metal filament and glass, it knows the truth we all must know. It knows this too shall pass. For now the theatre's empty, while the ghost light does still burn, but the ghost light has a meaning. It means we shall return.